Hi there, I'm Chloe Veltman and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to singing and the best of the vocal music scene. Thanks for joining me. Margaret McKee was one of the first professional whistlers to be recorded. The recording we just heard, featuring this virtuoso whistler, dates all the way back to 1921. They don't make them like that anymore, that's for sure. Few people on this planet could ever hope to master the art of whistling as well as Margaret McKee did, and yet whistling has had a hard time over the years being taken seriously as an artistic pursuit. McKee could certainly pucker up and toot out a tune, but listeners today are more likely to enjoy her work for its sheer kitsch value than for its aesthetic acumen. So should virtuosic whistlers have a place in the artistic pantheon alongside the greatest singers in the world? How has whistling developed in Western culture since the advent of recorded sound? And what's its future? To help answer these questions and many more, I'm lucky to be joined in the studio by a prodigious whistler and an accomplished music journalist, Jason Victor Serenus. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here. Hi, Chloe. You could barely stop giggling during Margaret McKee. I know. It's such a great little song. She's wonderful. In her own way. Yes. And it's precisely that kind of bird whistling that got banned at the International Whistlers Convention, which happens now every other year in Lewisburg, North Carolina, because it gave whistling such a bad name. What a pity. I quite like it. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a wonderful party trick. But <laughs> but the, the truth of the matter is that McKee studied at the Agnes Woodward School of Artistic Whistling in Los Angeles. My God, that sounds like a, a, a finishing school in Switzerland. Well, in, in a way it was, because I was once shown a picture by a woman who graduated from the school or taught there. She was living in Rossmore at the time. Uh And it seems that Patrice Munsell, whom she said was initially Patrice Munsell, started out as a whistler. Mm -hmm. And I was shown a picture of tutu-clad maidens kind of going across the stage, flapping their arms, all whistling. I know you're going to lose it, Chloe. No, I'm holding it together. And they they discovered that, in fact, Patrice Munsell could sing better than she whistled and then began her career in Broadway and at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, But what what, uh, Agnes Woodward did, and she wrote a book on the art of whistling, was to develop this nomenclature where you took things like Strauss waltzes and you interspersed these technically precise bird calls. Mm -hmm. So there was the tui-tui and the this and the that. And the people who did them and did them as well as as Margaret McKee worked very, very hard. So they elevated whistling to a certain place that some might say was (laughs) the opposite of high. Mm -hmm. And that's um, where I think some of us are trying to dig out from these days. Okay, well, we'll get to that later on in the show. But first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about you and your accomplishments as a whistler. Among other remarkable whistling things that you've done during your long career, um, you have served as the whistling voice of Woodstock, Snoopy's best friend in the Peanuts cartoon series, and you've performed on The Tonight Show. So I thought, Jason, if you didn't mind, we could start by hearing um, a recording 
recording of O Mio Babino Caro from the opera Gianni Schicchi by Puccini. You performed the iconic aria in the TV special She's a Good Skate, Charlie Brown. When Peppermint Patty's music for a skating competition doesn't play owing to a technical issue, Woodstock steps up to the microphone and provides a flawless rendition of the song, enabling Peppermint Patty to execute her routine. And win the competition. If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. We're exploring the world of whistling on tonight's show with a virtuoso practitioner of the art form, Jason Victor Serenus, who is also an arts journalist based in Oakland. Jason, that performance we just heard of you whistling O Mio Babino Caro from Puccini's Gianni Schicchi was phenomenal. Tell us how you came to be the musical voice of Woodstock in the Peanuts TV series. Well, I had done a series of showcases in Los Angeles and, um, and one of those showcases, I, 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 one was called America Votes for Tomorrow's Stars. <laughs> and um, a woman, Judy Berlin, who ended up teaching, who te- taught children's drama classes in San Francisco, was also auditioning. And we ended up on the plane together. She gave me a ride home from the airport when we got back to the Bay Area. And she said to me, you know, you should be the voice of a cartoon character. You should contact Lee Mendelssohn. And and a month or two later, I called her up and said, Lee Mendelssohn, uh, where is he? Oh, he's in Burlingame. Just look him up. You can call. So I had no idea who Lee Mendelssohn was. Mm -hmm. I called him up. I gave him my spiel. And it seems he thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. He hung up the phone and he says, I actually called him back and said, no, no, you don't understand. I whistle with symphony orchestras. I've been on these TV shows. And a few months later, I came home to my starving artist, two rooms behind a store, heat from the oven, hovel, and the little red light is flashing on my answering machine. I turn it on and I hear, hello, uh, Jason Serenus, uh, uh, this is Lee Mendelson. Look, uh, Charles Schultz and I were thinking about maybe having you uh, whistle the voice of Woodstock in a Peanuts cartoon. Look, uh, do you happen to know, and he, he didn't get the pronunciation right, but Omeo... Babino Caro. And I stopped and I said, Peanuts? Charles Schultz? Oh, mio Babino Caro, I've been whistling it over the sound system at Pier 39 for a year, of course. <laughs> so I hung my $30 microphone over the hot water pipe, turned on my $40 tape recorder, whistled my brains out and sent it to them. And I got a call back and they said, we want you. That's great. What a great story. So take us back before then. Tell us a bit about how you got into this whistling business in the first place. Well, the apocryphal story is that I never cried as a child and I came out of the womb whistling Brahms' cradle song. But <laughs> you really can't believe everything you've been told. Um, what what uh, My father used to whistle. He would whistle, well, he would call us by going... 
And he'd whistle the man on the flying trapeze while driving the uh, car to Brooklyn to visit my grandmother. And when I was 11, he brought home a Caruso reissue album on Mm -hmm. LP, which I still have. And he put on the sextet from Lucia de Lamamore. And I Mm -hmm. said, Daddy, I've heard that before. And he said, yeah, you broke it when you were two. And it was then that I realized that the music that I was hearing... Um, Gallicucci's Caronome, Tetrazzini, Caruso were all around me, literally, in my formative period when I was six months old, etc. And it somehow really imprinted on my psyche. Mm-hmm. And from that time on, I became this closet whistler who would whistle along to Caruso, then to Leontine Price, then to Joan Sutherland. I'd kind of sneak to high school whistling, but if anybody saw me, I'd break into a cold sweat and I'd stop. But besides that, um, I was just whistling away. So what are the basic mechanics of whistling, Jason? How does one do it? So I have a very different projection than most other whistlers I know. Mm -hmm. Have have you ever had a lesson or are you completely self-taught? Well, uh, no, I'm not completely self-taught. I worked for a year with Tommy Eckert, Tomasa Eckert, who's actually a wonderful soprano, and Rindy Eckert. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know him, performance artist and and producer, um, his sister. Mm. And but basically, she worked with me the same way she'd work with a singer. I even have range breaks mm-hmm. in the same place that singers do. Wow! Don't ask me. Wow, that's really interesting. So, how would you describe this relationship between your singing voice and your whistling voice? Do you consider them to be one and the same thing? The interesting thing is that when I've performed over the years, people have often come up to me and said to me, "Wow, I really love your voice. I mean, your whistle." And they literally call it my voice because I basically whistle vocal music and because they understand, I think, on a gut level that I'm singing. Mm. Okay. Well, you described to me your whistle as lirico spinto the other day, which I thought was very interesting because that's a classification one would normally apply to a sort of medium weight soprano or tenor. Yes. What did you mean by uh, by that, and and how yeah how does that work? Well, I meant exactly what how the way you who are, you know, versed in music and are a singer yourself, understands it. I mean, I'm a I'm a lyric with some spinto. Um, reach, which means a heavier sound, mm-hmm. and I think a more incisive, incisive sound. Mm-hmm. Although I'm now 67 years old, mm-hmm. and I don't pretend, I think you're going to play a piece of mine at the end that goes up to a high C, and I, I used to be able to blast it. Mm-hmm. And I rarely whistle these days, and I don't pretend that I can still do it. But amazingly, the Ridente La Calma that people will hear me whistling in the end, which we just recorded in the studio because I don't have it on the little demo CD I sell. Um, My tone has remained steady and it does still virtually everything I want it to do. I don't know how that's possible, but that's what happens. Well, but that's great. If you're a good singer, does that predispose you to also being good at whistling or can you be a good whistler without having much of a singing voice? Well, I do, they're certainly not contradictory. Pavarotti sang, uh, uh, whistled, uh, Régine Crespin whistled. And when I interviewed Karina Gauvin, um, she told me that she, was, she went to my website and discovered my whistling. I was especially fascinated because her teacher used to say to her, okay, if your voice is really tired, whistle it to practice it. Mm. But 
in my particular case, my singing voice kind of tightened up at a certain point in my life. Don't mm-hmm. know, never explored through hypnotherapy, et cetera, all the reasons why. And my whistling took over. Huh. So I used to be a first tenor. Now you would not pay me to sing. <laughs> well, they, now you're paid to listen to singing and write about it. This is true. This <laughs> it's a is different true. thing, though. Thank so, you. So I find it, because I, I don't listen to whistling all that often, uh, very hard to distinguish between men whistling and women whistling. They sound very similar to me. Are men's and women's whistles, in fact, very distinct? Can you tell them apart by gender? Well, first of all, I just want to express my sadness and actually condolences at your, the limitations of your cultural um, <laughs> exposure. Thank you, Jason. But um, the answer is I have never heard an iota of difference. I've heard the argument that men's lungs have greater capacity than women. Ah. But that sure hasn't stopped people like Joan Sutherland. Right. So? (laughs) Another question for you. What makes a great whistling voice then? Are the qualities the same as the ones that go into making a great singing voice, do you think? I think that one of the things that makes a great whistling voice is imagination. Mm -hmm. When people have a sense of musical flow, musical line, and what sings... And people who really have that can create a sound based on the idea in their head because that's what singers do. Mm -hmm. And other whistlers hear a commercial that goes... (whistles) And they think, okay, that's good whistling. Mm. So it's about having sensitivity and a sense of line and all these things that singers have to. Right, right. And when you have that, then you can, I, I think, begin to mold your instrument along the ideas that you have. So my models were always singers. They weren't other whistlers and they weren't birds. I mean, the birds we had on Long Island where I was raised were starlings and they were, there were so many of them, you know, they pooped on everybody's... <laughs> patio everyone was they were trying to like poison them you know and they're pigeons so i didn't have very good role models <laughs> from the ornithological kingdom what can i say all right well i think we should hear a track from perhaps someone who is more of a role model of yours and um, this is a great singer who's also a great whistler elizabeth schumann and we'll hear her singing and whistling Josef strauss's sphärenklange This is Voicebox, and that was Elizabeth Schumann singing and whistling Josef Strauss's Sphärenklanger. I'm Chloe Veltman, and on this week's show, I'm in the studio with whistler and music commentator Jason Victor Serenus for a discussion about the art of whistling. Jason, what's notable about the performance we just heard by Elizabeth Schumann? Well, what's wonderful about her, and I'd say the same about Hoagie Carmichael. Who we're going to hear later. Oh, great. And Bing Crosby and even Al Jolson. Who we'll hear. Is that they were all singers whose style of whistling integrated perfectly with their vocal artistry. Schumann had this 
little bird call thing that we've heard. Adorable. But her personality in this kind of music was adorable. There is no one else on the planet who has ever recorded or sung that music the way she did. Mm -hmm. And it's irresistible. And it's so charming. And her, her whistling adds to the charm. Now, she's not going to do that in the middle of Verity. Well, she never recorded any Verity, Verity you know, but she's not going to do that in the middle of Richard Strauss. Mm-hmm. But in Josef Strauss, which is operetta, it works. Mm-hmm. So it's very tastefully done. And being Crosby, who was infinitely charming and smooth, his whistling was the exact same style. Mm-hmm. So it worked really well. Well, if there's one whistler whom you hold up as being a giant in the field, perhaps above all other whistlers, judging from what you've told me, Jason, it's the Dutchman by the name of Hiet Chartreux. This is a whistler who has an incredible mixture, it strikes me, of, of the technique and the joy, the the empathy, the the, the personality comes out in his uh, voice. And so I thought we could listen now to this uh, example of him performing. It's a sample, actually, that anyone could find on YouTube if you type in his name. It's um, it's of a presentation he did at the TEDx conference in Rotterdam. So let's listen now. <laughs> I'm Chloe Veltman, and this is Voicebox. To find out more about Voicebox, please visit voicebox-media.org. And also, please check out our free podcasts on the website or via iTunes. This evening, I'm joined by whistler Jason Victor Serenus for a discussion about the art of whistling. We just heard the great Dutch whistler, Heert Chartreux, showing off his skills at a TEDx conference in Rotterdam. Even in the trendy TED conference arena, the appearance of a champion whistler seems more like a novelty act than part of the usual stuff that one would expect to find at such an event. Why do you think that whistling is largely regarded as a novelty today, Jason? The world is a football game. Mm. And so I guess whistlers are the ones to get kicked around. Not that not that certain aspects of whistling aren't downright amusing. Right. I mean, all the bird calls, for example, the kitschiness of it. And the fact that, for example, whistlers have long been representing cartoon characters and puppets and things like that. It's very, there's a sort of acuteness that's become associated with whistling that perhaps hasn't done it much good as an art form. But without wishing to contradict. Oh, please do contradict. Woodstock is a character who really touches people's hearts. And one of my real joys within the year of recording that, I think, well, actually it was many years later, I met Paula Robeson, one of the great flautists, mm. American flautists of, of our generation, mm. who is Michael Tilson Thomas' sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And when we met at a party at Michael's and I said I had whistled the part of Woodstock, she went, oh, that was you? My husband and I were in our apartment in New York City crying. And people literally cried all over the country. 
And Lee Mendelssohn and Charles Schultz received more letters for that special than for any other Peanuts cartoon they had done up to that point. I even had this lesbian couple who hired me to perform in their house because they said, we are so embarrassed. We hear you at street fairs and we start breaking down crying and then we hide ourselves. <laughs> so I shouldn't laugh, but it's funny. Well, of course <laughs> it's funny. But, uh, you know, and I wouldn't deny that. But But the truth of the matter is... That whistling can also really touch the heart. And that is, I mean, the classes I teach on vocal music are voices that touch the heart. And that's what I've always tried to do with my whistling. I mean, I do light pieces that are joyful. Um, I mean, I even do a mock Indian love call because in 1943, Fred Lowry sold one million copies of the Indian love call whistling it. We're going to hear that. Oh, aren't you lucky? (laughs) (laughs) So the popularity of whistling has ebbed and flowed over the decades, as we hope to illustrate during the rest of the show. Jason, can you take us back to the beginning of the whistling history here in the Western world, at least as far back as the advent of recorded sound? What was whistling like back then and what was its reception in those early days of recorded sound? Well... I can't take you back fully because... You went alive. As old as I am. (laughs) (laughs) I have a... My friend, Chellis Glendini, did the book Waking Up in the Nuclear Age, and she once said to me, what day were you born? And I said, July 15th, 1945. And she said, you had one nuclear-free day because (laughs) the first test was at Almogordo on July 16th. (laughs) So I had one day free of harmful radiation. But before that, there was whistling. And there were literally whistling choirs. There was a whistler to a king or queen of England. Mm. Um, whistling was celebrated in the 19th century. And then it was also very big in the U.S. in vaudeville. Well, let's listen now to an early whistling recording. Here is Guido Gialdini with an aria from Dinora by Maya Beer. Jason, what can you tell us about Gialdini's style before we listen to the track? Um his staccato, of course, is perfect. Yeah, very jaunty. But he's also doing that little kitsch thing of interspersing things that a singer would never do, but a whistler can. And that is a question of taste. <laughs> and taste has changed. Uh, I would not whistle it that way, but frankly, I'm not a coloratura. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that a coloratura, when she did those, would do those long-held notes, would have a vibrato. And his tone was basically straight there. Right. And that, again, is a stylistic choice because he did do one beautiful high note that was just lovely in which he had a vibrato. So I would make different stylistic choices, but then I, since I could never whistle this to begin with, who am I to speak? Well, let's listen now. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org.
My guest on tonight's show about whistling is Jason Victor Serenus. We just heard a 1927 recording, Guido Gialdini, whistling an aria from Dinora by Maya Beer. So from, from the early to the mid-20th century, whistling seemed to enter a bit of a golden age, didn't it, Jason? What can you tell us about how the scene developed during this period? I know there were a few people who really took whistling and ran with it and, and it gained a lot of popularity for the art form. Yes, I mean, of course there was Al Jolson mm-hmm. who who was whistling in that very first talkie, the jazz singer. Right. But from there, we had certain people who had bona fide hits. There was Elmo Tanner, with Ted Weems and his orchestra. There was Fred Lowry. And uh, he he uh, had this Indian love call that you mentioned earlier right, that was very popular. Right, extremely popular. And, and he was known as the blind whistler um, uh, because he he was sight impaired. Mm. And so that was the consciousness of the, of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he, he was a big hit uh, in certain circles, of course. Mm-hmm. And then there were the popular singers like Hoagie Carmichael and Bing Crosby who really integrated whistling into their style in a most charming way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about jazz? Well, that came a little later. Uh, Ron McCroby, who I guess died in the last 10 years, um, appeared at at least one Monterey Jazz Festival. And he was an ad man Mm -hmm. by profession, really smart, who coined the phrase, I play the puckalo. (laughs) He had, I went to hear him at the Great American Music Hall. Mm-hmm. And he had a very, very little whistle. Mm-hmm. He put the microphone right up against his mouth. There was no sound whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then he had a little reverb unit mm-hmm. that added to it. Yeah. But technically and musically, he was superb. That's how he got to the Monterey. I mean, he knew some people at Monterey Jazz as well. But he wouldn't have gotten on that stage and been applauded if he weren't really musical. Well, let's listen now to a bunch of fantastic 20th century whistlers. In order of appearance, Fred Lowry, Hoagie Carmichael, Ron McCroby, Al Jolson, and last but not least, an addition that I couldn't resist adding, Alessandro Alessandroni. For more detailed playlist information, please visit voicebox-media.org.
Up jumps a moon to make it that much grander It's paradise, brother take my advice Nothing's half as nice as Memphis in June Five famous 20th century whistling talents, Fred Lowry, Hoagie, Carmichael, Ron McCroby, Al Jolson and Alessandro Alessandroni, who was the whistling talent for many of Ennio Morricone's spaghetti western films. And that's the theme song from A Fistful of Dollars. For more detailed playlist information, please visit voicebox-media.org. You're tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman, your host. For tonight's discussion about whistling, I'm joined by professional whistler and music journalist Jason Victor Serenus. Jason, so what happened to whistling in the second half of the 20th century? Lord, if I know. <laughs> you were there. Uh, I was there, but I, you know, I've done my best. <laughs> what can I say? Um, there are some wonderful whistlers, and I think there's a far more popular acceptance now. Um, even on commercials, we hear it all the time. So whistling has, in many ways made a comeback. Andrew Bird just whistled in a Muppets movie. Right. We'll hear from him in a bit. Um, so I think there's hope. So what kind of professional opportunities are available for whistlers today, Jason? You know, there re- actually, there are a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is, there are more than one person who are doing soundtracks in com- uh, animated cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of opportunities in commercials. If especially if they, the people producing them use some imagination. I mean, I've always envisioned myself as a whistling pizza driver, you know, who drives <laughs> his van up and starts whistling something from the Barber of Seville or something like that, something everybody knows and hands them their pizza. Or, you know, Crystal Geyser and water. I once even did, I did this demo thing, you know, pretending I was the whistler for oven cleaner. I made up this whole 
com- dummy commercial. We did makeup and everything. We filmed it by by you know spotlights at night on the top of Twin Peaks. And I sent it out. I spent a fortune to ad agencies all over the country, and uh-huh. their reaction was, "When we w- need a whistler, we'll call you." Uh-huh. And it, it was hilarious. It was a great clip, uh-huh. you know. So it's just when when the imagination of people who do these things equals the talent of people who are ready to serve, then something will happen and we'll get beyond stupid auditions on America's Got Talent, where if anyone saw the promos for some of the recent runs, yes, it was me to whom Howard Stern said, I never hope to see you again in my life, which... I must say, was kind of a mirror of what I was thinking internally. (laughs) Okay. Well, so you mentioned the idea of doing voiceovers for characters on TV shows and movies as being a really, you know, good way now for professional whistlers to make some money and gain some recognition. I thought we could play right now a rather sweet soundbite featuring the songwriter and wonderful whistler Andrew Bird uh, as the voice of Walter, a character from the 2011 Muppet movie. In this scene, Walter, also known as the Whistling Caruso, steps in at the last moment to fill in for the missing climax of a theatrical performance with his tuneful operatic whistling. It's Walter. Walter and his Whistling Caruso act from the 2011 Muppet movie. The expert whistling voice for the character was provided by the talented singer-songwriter Andrew Bird. Speaking of birds, Jason, we've heard a few wonderful bird call imitations during the course of tonight's show, perhaps most notably by old-school whistlers like Margaret McKee and Elizabeth Schumann, whom we heard near the start of the programme. To what extent has bird call served as an inspiration for whistlers throughout history? I know it hasn't served as much of an inspiration for you living around all those starlings. Yes, but it it has served for some people um, because whistling is in the same octave range. And there is an annual bird call competition at Piedmont High School. Wow. You didn't even know it's in this area. I had no idea. It was started by the late Leonard Waxdeck. And it is a scream <laughs> because they people stand up there in their tuxedos and their prom dresses and they go, I will now whistle. The theme of the great horned, horned waxback. And then they just go into these ridiculous bird calls. <laughs> so, um, it, it, yes, it, it, it has inspired people and it has also inspired other whistlers to never go down that road. Oh, my God. 
Hey, bravo, parrot. <laughs> Let's move from someone's pet parrot singing the Andy Griffith Show theme song to thinking about the artistic directions in which human beings are taking whistling today. Jason, it seems that whistling has become quite trendy again in all kinds of corners of the pop music world. From hip-hop artists like Flo Rida to folk groups like Tin Hat to indie rock bands like The Drums, artists are incorporating whistling into their work in a variety of ways. We'll talk about it in a moment, but let's check some of them out now. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org where you can also find loads of great information about our series, including playlists and schedules. We're talking about whistling with guest Jason Victor Serenus, a professional whistler whose credits include an appearance on The Tonight Show and the whistling voice of Snoopy sidekick Woodstock from the Peanuts cartoon series. We just heard a few ways in which contemporary rock, rap and folk artists are incorporating whistling into their work. The first track was Let's Go Surfing by The Drums, an American indie pop band from Brooklyn, New York. The second was the San Francisco-based folk outfit Tin Hat with Pablo Looks Back. And the third and final track, entitled Whistle, came from the hip-hop artist Flo Rida. Jason, what do you make of the ways in which artists and groups like Flo Rida, Tin Hat and The Drums are using whistling? It's it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it works in the context. The one thing that I would hope is that more whistlers would be more ina- imaginative in how they use the instrument. Mm. Because there are all those kind of classic ways of attack, so it sounds like whistling. Mm-hmm. And as you, you'll hear from my whistling, 
I try to use it more as a voice. So I try to connect notes, do legato, not do the, you know, as you go into the mm-hmm. sound, and try to create something different with that. And, you know, it almost makes me feel like I'm a synthesizer compared to them in that, you know, it's like, like because a lot of people don't think that what I do is possible until they hear it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just hoping that more people will stretch the envelope and also the octave range um, because, you know, I at my best have have had close to two octaves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people are are kind of almost whistling. They're more mezzos and I'm a soprano. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think lies ahead for whistling as an art form, Jason? Well, I, um, I think the world is wide open. Um... As long as the planet survives, I know I sound like an only Jewish child, but seriously, folks, we're in a, in a real crisis point, you know, on the planet. And there are all these conflicting forces right now. And I think that whistling has the ability, for example, like Tibetan bells, when used in a directed way, to really energize certain chakras and open things up and help open and expand consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I think that the world is open if you want to move into that space. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's thinking about whistling in a completely different way to how we've discussed it tonight. It leaves us all with more food for thought, I think. That's the point. Well, our show is uh, sadly coming to an end for this week, but I'd like to thank tonight's special guest, Jason Victor Serenas, for puckering up with us here in the studio tonight. Thanks so much, Jason, for coming in to chat. It's been a joy. To find out more about tonight's guest, Jason Victor Serenas, please visit his website at jasonserenas.com, which is spelled J-A-S-O-N-S-E-R-I-N-U-S.com. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. And don't forget to support Voicebox. Find out how you can become a member of our inner circle for as little as $5 a month or make a one-time donation by visiting voicebox-media.org. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to us are tax deductible. Send us your questions and comments to info at voicebox-media.org and please connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're looking for me on Twitter, I'm at Chloe Veltman. Let's go out with tonight's guest, expert whistler Jason Victor Serenus, giving us his rendition of Mozart's Ridente la Calma, which he recorded live in the KALW studios for us. Have a songful week. <laughs>